Amen and amen. Good morning, family. How you doing? If you and I haven't met, Ben Tiffy's my name. It's my great joy to be the lead pastor of this amazing church. And that lovely lady that you were talking with before is Danielle Tiffy. She is my wife. She's my first wife. And there won't be a second. That's for sure. Um, or a third. So yes, that's good. That's good. And uh, not because I'm good, but because she's very good. She's full of grace and love and truth. So it's, a, it's amazing. Well, we're glad that you joined us. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? Thank you, band. You guys were fabulous this morning. We're going to get you to come up at the end. Now, when you walked in, you may have got your communion. Lily, could I have that communion, please? This is my 14-year-old Lily. She's the best. She's our third child, so she's the third best in our house. Uh, When you walked in, you may have received your communion. We're going to take communion together towards the end of the message. So uh, what you can do is leave it sealed so you don't spill it on yourself and maybe just uh, put it aside. The other thing I need to let you know is it is our practice in all of our services uh, to collect these, which are our prayer praise cards. And what you can do is you can pop your needs on these cards. It's in an uh, anonymous box up the back of the service. And uh, you can fill out your details. You can let us know of a prayer request and we'll pray in our services. But more importantly, all week long, our team are praying for you. We've got a great team of prayer warriors, a great team of leaders, and we uh, soak these, these needs in prayer on your behalf. And week after week, we get testimonies of the amazing answers to prayer that God does. How many people know God answers prayer? Yeah. And uh, we get testimonies all the time. Now, if you would like to share your testimony with us of answered prayer, then you can tick a praise report here and give us a little report so that we can share it with God's people. would be pretty cool. And if you need something, you can go ahead and tick the box that says uh, request pastor or contact. And then one of our team would love to be in touch with you and find out if there's a way we can help, if there's a way we can support. We've got an amazing army of people in our church that love to help each other out and uh, serve each other as well. So at the end of today's service, I know you're all freaking out because we changed the order, didn't we? Usually we sing and then someone gets up and does the communion and then someone gets up and does the prayer request. And today we're mixing it up just to see how religious you are. Is it all right? Whose hackles have risen? Are you you okay? It's all good? All right, that's good. All right, the Africans said it's good, so it's good. That's fine. Um, Before we turn to communion and before we turn to praying over these needs and, in fact, the needs in our world, I'm sure, like me, many of you would have been glued to every news report you could possibly get your hands on with what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see what's going on there, isn't it? And we're going to pray for that at the end of our service. I'm sure, like me, many of you are monitoring the weather patterns around the country and seeing, you know, on top of coronavirus and isolation and lock-ins and business closures, now there's flooding in all sorts of places. Our friends in Gympie are experiencing evacuation and all through Queensland and other places. The top end's got cyclones blowing around. There's, there's all sorts of chaos. So we are going to bomb heaven with some of those prayer needs towards the end of the service. But before we do that, I want us to orient our minds and orient our hearts around why we would do that. Is that okay? Excellent. Let me just see if my remote control is working. It's not, so I've just got to start my app again. Just talk talk amongst you and Jesus for a second. (laughs) I want to talk to us today about the orientation of our hearts and why this is an important topic And why it's an important topic when it comes to prayer. Hampton Sides is an amazing author, has written many, many phenomenal uh, books. 
And one of them is called In the Kingdom of Ice, and it is the story of the voyage of the USS Jeanette. That's a US exploration ship that had an uh, exploration of the Arctic <laughs> in, the, in 1879. Now, the blurb of the book doesn't tell you the whole story. This is what the blurb of the book says. On July 8, 1979, Captain George Washington DeLong, that is, this is a US Navy ship, now, our worship leader this morning, he's a US Army guy that also used to be in part of the US Air Force. So he wasn't part of this expedition, and they, otherwise they wouldn't, have, you know, they wouldn't have got lost. But listen to what happened. Captain George Washington DeLong and his team of 32 men set sail from San Francisco on the USS Jeanette, heading deep into uncharted Arctic waters. They carried the aspirations of the young nation of the United States, burning to be the first country to reach the North Pole. Two years into the voyage. Just stop and think about that for a second. Two years into a voyage into the Arctic. Who's lived in Alice Springs for 12 months or more? Okay. Who gets up and complains in wintertime? Many of us. Who's just recently moved to Alice Springs? Just wait, friends. Good times ahead for you in wintertime. Good times ahead. Um, so two years into their Arctic voyage... <laughs> The Jeanette's hull was breached by impassable stretches of pack ice, forcing the crew to abandon ship amid torrents of the rushing of water. Hours later, the ship had sunk below the surface, marooning the men a thousand miles north of Siberia, where they faced a terrifying march with minimal supplies across the endless ice. Enduring everything from snow blindness to polar bears, and ferocious storms and labyrinths of ice. The crew battled madness and starvation as they struggled desperately to survive. With thrilling twists and turns, in the kingdom of the ice is a tale of heroism, determination in the most brutal place on earth. Sounds good, doesn't it? A tale of heroism and determination. Who's keen? Now, this is often what you find is everybody loves a good tragedy story, but have you ever stopped and thought to yourself, how often uh, we end up in a tragedy story, but we don't ask ourselves, how did I get into this mess? The truth behind the fateful voyage actually sounds a little bit different. This is really the account of a failed 19th century polar expedition. It's a cautionary tale because it is about the hazards of misorientation due to a faulty compass and, listen to this one, a mistaken map. The entire expedition rested on a picture of the unknown. Think about that. It rested on a picture of the unknown. And here's why. The entire voyage was based deludedly on the fake maps of Dr. August Heinrich Petermann whose maps suggested a thermometric gateway through the ice that opened up into a vast polar sea on the top of the world, which would result in a fair weather passage beyond all the ice. This entire expedition was based on a map of unreality. I've got an example for it, for it up on the screen. A map of thermometric gateways through and past the ice that result to a balmy, paradisaical, tropical destination at the top of the globe. Utter madness. In the age of Google Earth, obviously, we know that to be a falsehood. <laughs> As it turned out, Captain DeLong and his crew were heading to a world that didn't exist. 
Perilous ice quickly surrounded the ship. The team had to shed their fundamental ideas in their unfounded romance and replace them with a reality, the way things really are in the Arctic. Here's the point. They had a faulty compass, so they steered the wrong way, and they had a faulty map, so they were pursuing a fantasy that they were never going to arrive at. This is why this is important for you and I. Our culture sells us faulty and fantastical maps of the good life. It paints alluring pictures which draw us towards them. And this twists the compass of our hearts so that now the, 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 the arrow, the dial in our hearts doesn't point to God's true magnetic north, but to some other delusional picture. And all too often we stake the expedition of our lives on this faulty compass and this faulty map. And we set sail towards them with our sails hoisted high and our compass of our hearts hopelessly misaligned taking us in the wrong direction and propelling us toward destruction. And we do it all without thinking about it. Because our compass and our maps don't work with our rational thought, do they? They work on our imagination. They work at the level of our loves, our longings, our yearnings, our appetites, our desires. They work at the level not of our heads but of our hearts. And how many times, friends, has our appetites, our desires, our, our imaginations, our fantasies led us to a place that we thought was going to work out, but ultimately it ends in shipwreck? Have you seen it happen? We've seen it in our own lives, haven't we? I can remember, if, if you don't know my story, maybe, maybe if you're new to us or if you're new watching online, welcome to you. That 20 years ago, I was a hopeless drug addict and alcoholic hopeless and, and suffering from severe trauma and severe depression. And why I used to drink myself to sleep was not because I wanted to party or rebel, but simply because every time I was conscious, I was in gut-wrenching pain. And so myself had a really great idea. Well, let's just drink ourselves to sleep. That idea came to me when I was 10 years old. I drank myself to sleep till I was in my mid-20s. And I found Jesus and found the light of the gospel and suddenly realized that not only had I been following a wrong map, but the compass of my heart was hopelessly leading me in the wrong direction. Fortunately, before I was irrevocably shipwrecked, my life was able to turn around because my wife had the wise insight. I think only God could help you. And we went to church and we found Jesus transformed my life. But, you know, I know many people whose stories are similar to mine but don't have the same ending. I've done funerals for people who have drunk themselves to death, snorted themselves to death, killed themselves in foolish, foolish ways, had their families turn their back on them, blown up their social world. And why? Because the map of their heart, they were chasing a destination that was never going to end well. And the compass of their heart took them in a direction that was never going to end well. I want you to think about this today. The map we have of reality, where do we think we're going in life? What is the picture we're headed towards? And the compass of our heart? Where, where, how am I aligned? What am I seeking? And I want to lay on you just some observations before we get to what this has to do with our prayer cards. This is important. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Above all else, that makes it first priority. Guard your heart. That means you're the steward, you're the shopkeeper, you're the greenkeeper, you're the beekeeper. 
of your heart. Sometimes our heart's a little bit more like being a zookeeper, isn't it? Every now and then it needs a bit of a sweep out or a hose out. Guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. The heart in this picture is like an underground spring. An underground spring. If you poison that underground spring, then anyone who drinks from that water is going to be poisoned. And that's a picture of our heart. Something deep beneath the surface of our life. Something deep beneath our psyche. Something deep, deeply beneath our consciousness. There's our heart. It's the direction of our life. The core of our being. And scripture says it's of first priority above everything else. Keep a guard on it. Because... It affects everything you do. Going back to the metaphor of the USS Jeanette, the heart is both a compass and a map. James K.A. Smith says, says it this way, the heart is part compass and part internal guidance system. In one way, it turns us toward things, but in another way, it doesn't just turn us toward things, it propels us towards those things, doesn't it? You drift towards what you love. You drift towards what you're enamoured with. Or you see it with teenage romance, don't you? When, you? when your teenagers go through this transitional phase from, ooh, girls' germs, to suddenly gravitational pull, the tractor beam of the woman. Have you seen it in the young men in your world? can work the other way too, that the, the girls go from, ooh, boys' germs, to, ooh, boys'. And then suddenly what used to be a repelling force is now a tractor beam, drawing them in. And then your brain stops working. <laughs> it's both a compass and an internal guidance system, our heart. It, it, and, and, and our heart is heavily oriented according to the map of reality that we use. How do I think the world is? That's called our worldview, our values, our major navigational waypoints. And the interaction of these two things, our map is usually given to us by our culture or our family or the world we live in, unless we substitute it. And the compass of our heart is first formed by that map and then causes us to navigate and propel towards the things that our map most values. And the problem with that is, of course, is that we can be chasing a fantasy or at the very least, we can end up shipwrecked on rocks like the USS Jeanette, a faulty map and a faulty compass. And Jesus came to open our eyes, didn't he? He came to open our eyes to, the, to, to supply us with a new map of reality called the kingdom of God, to supply us with a new way of living called the way of Jesus, with a new type of life called the life of the disciple, and to give us a new heart, which really means to correctly align our compass so it points in the right way, so that when we're navigating, we're not navigating off in the wrong direction. And that's a wonderful thing about the gift that Jesus gives us as disciples is he says, have a new map. You can trust this map. You won't end up in a shipwreck. And then the problem is you can have the right map, but if you have a faulty compass, then the map is almost no good, isn't it? You can, you know, one degree off course, but, but, but extrapolate that out over 100 miles. And so Jesus says, I, I come to give you a new map to see life the way he saw it, to see God the way he saw it, to see scripture the way he saw it, and then to view everything through that lens of Christ. And then to renew our hearts and give us a new compass so that we can guard it and point in the right direction. It's important for us to think about this. The heart is a multifunctional desire device. Isn't that a great quote from James K.A. Smith? A multifunctional desire device device that is part engine and part 
homing beacon. It's another way of saying what we've just said, but I thought it was just such a great quote, I knew you'd love it. It's a multifunctional desire device. It's part engine, it moves us somewhere, and it's part homing beacon. It's causing us to home in on something. And there's not often rhyme or reason about what our heart would have us home in on, is there? It's called retail therapy, friends. Have you ever obsessed over something and then at the end of the day realise once you got it, I don't even know why I got this. It's called buyer's remorse. Or maybe your spouse does it and then you think, I don't even know why they got that. Because it's a multifunctional desire device. Here's another great quote from James K.A. Smith. The heart is the compass, it's an erotic homing device. Erotic, in, when you use it in literature, doesn't just mean like naughty stuff. It, it means at the seat of our desires and our loves. It's a, a love homing device. And we need to calibrate our hearts and tune them to be directed to the Creator, our true magnetic north. And I want you to think why this is possible. Because according to philosophers, anthropologists, psychologists, and theologians, you are what you love. You are what you love. You are what you long for. You are what you yearn after. And therefore, we need to curate our hearts. Because you are what you love, and then you worship what you love. That's a, an idea that would be at home in the company with Isaiah or Jesus or Freud and Jung. You are what you love, because you worship what you love. All humans are worshippers. Worship simply means comes from the Middle English word worth script, to assign worth to, to assign value to. So when we worship Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, I'm putting you in the primary place, in the highest place of value in my mind, in my heart, even with the posture of my body, which is why, I don't know, I raise my hands or kneel my knees or clap them. I'm putting Jesus first when I worship. I'm assigning value and worship. Well, you do that to what you love, and then what you love shapes you. Listen to this next bit. You are what you love because you live towards what you want at the deepest core of you. Whatever you most love, you drift towards. You live towards. The values of your life will arrange themselves over what you most and deeply love. Our orienting loves, like a kind of gravity, they carry us in the direction of that to which they are weighted. If our loves, here's an example, if our loves are absorbed with material things, then our love is a weight that drags us downward to inferior things, stuff. And have you ever noticed this thing across our culture? Actually, there's a wonderful YouTube video you can search. It's called Stars Tell the Truth About Being Rich. And you've got Lady Gaga and movie stars and rock stars, and they all say the same thing. I spent my whole life trying to get rich and famous. Now I'm rich and famous. My life is meaningless and empty. It's incredibly moving just to see these amazingly influential culture shapers. And some of them just have spent decades of their life pursuing the pinnacle of fame and fortune and they've gotten there only to find out it's an empty promise and they don't even, there's no hope in the video. They don't know where to turn. But their lives, their orientation of their love propelled them in a certain direction. But when they got there, they worked out my life is shipwrecked. Marriages fall apart. Relationships break down. They become drug addicts, they become alcoholics, they suicide. There's all sorts of horrible, horrible outcomes. 
because whatever our love is weighted towards drags us in that direction. Let's talk a little bit closer to home. Martin Luther said this in his, his large catechism. If you don't have time, read his small catechism. He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That is really your God. People think they don't have a God in our culture. It's because they're atheists. Oh, they have a God. People say, oh, you know, the church wants your money. No, all of your gods want your money because where your treasure is, there your heart is. So whatever your heart is oriented towards, your physical resources are devoted to it. All, we, all, we all give to our God, friends, every single one of us. The question is, what God am I giving to? And what result is that having in the shaping of my life? G.K. Beale noted it this way, you become what you worship. And that's the title of a famous book that he wrote, where he unpacks the theology from the book of Isaiah and says, Isaiah shows you the Israelites in their silliness. They get rebuked by the prophet Isaiah because they worship idols. And Isaiah says, how dumb. Idols are blind, they're deaf, and they're dumb. They, they can't hear, they can't speak, they can't feel anything. And you worship them. And so guess what? Now you're blind spiritually, now you're spiritually deaf, and you're spiritually dumb, and you can't hear, you can't see, and you can't even talk to God anymore. That's what Isaiah says. The foolishness. Because you become like what you worship. Isaiah's point. Your idols are deaf and dumb and blind and so are you. Which brings me to the point of today's discussion. Worship and prayer reorients our hearts. Okay? So that's why you make a good choice when you you come to church. But it's not the only way you can do it. You make a good choice when you turn up to Connect Group. You make a good choice when you open your Bible at home. You make a good choice when you play your harmonica and worship Jesus. Or your tambourine. I think Yvette might be the only one that does that. Or Peter. You make a good choice when you put on a Darlene song. Or your favourite Spotify playlist. You make a good choice. Because what happens is when, when, you, when you do something around worship, when you do something around prayer, and by the way, they should always be well braided together in the teaching of Jesus. When you, when, you, when, when you do this, what you're doing is you're not just enjoying music, you're reorienting your heart. You're critiquing your map and saying, how does my map line up with the things I'm singing and thinking about? And that's why worship is just such wonderful theology lessons, really. So we've got to be careful about what songs we ruminate on. And then what happens is, as I, as I critique my map, I feel the, 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 the compass of my heart slowly being reoriented. So, have you ever noticed this, right? When I was a new believer, I was enthusiastic and grateful to God, but I would often wake up on, let's say, Sunday mornings or Friday nights, or when else did we go to worship services, Daniel? Wednesday nights, Friday nights, Sunday morning, Sunday night. We were like God junkies. Because I've been a junkie on everything else, let me tell you. I'm happy to be free. And so, I, I, but I would often think, oh, I don't really feel like doing that. Have you ever had that? I mean, you don't have to admit now, because, you know, your friend Ben's here looking at you. I'm going to get my feelings hurt if you confess that you wake up Sunday mornings and don't want to come to church. But often we don't. Okay. It's like, I, I love God, but boy, I don't feel like loving God today. So what do I do? Well, what I do, what I do and what we've done before we had children and now since we've had children is we just make a rule, but this is what we do. This is what we do. We come to church. We sing. We clap our hands. We lift our hands in worship. We participate in worship. We participate in prayer. 
That's different from like standing around like a cow looking at a new gate, by the way. Now, if people are visiting church and they don't know Jesus, they can stare and, and look. They have to work out what's going on. But when you know Jesus and you come and do that in church, you're robbing yourself of an opportunity. And the opportunity you're robbing yourself is, is you're robbing yourself of the opportunity of having your map and your compass aligned around loving God. Okay? So here's the secret. Are you ready for it? And I, it took me 10 years to learn this well. And then I've spent the last 10 or 14 years practicing it really well. Okay? So this is what, this is what it is. Loving God is the best way to love God. So I don't wait till I have feelings of love for God. I perform acts of love towards God. Worship, prayer, serving, I don't know, giving, Bible meditation, Christian unity, <laughs> all the historic, historic Christian disciplines. Okay, And what happens is, as I do that, I start feeling more in love with God. But if I just waited to feel in love with God before I did it, I don't know if I'd ever do anything, to be honest. Now, perchance, you're better than I am. I don't doubt it, looking around this room at the spiritual giants in my midst. Just kidding. Um, I think you're normal like me. And I think all of us need to understand the secret, that the best way to love God is loving God. Okay? We teach this to marriage when we do mar marriage therapy with couples. Okay? Here it is. Actions of love lead towards feelings of love. If you wait for feelings of love before you do actions of love, then you're going to have romantic relationships that span 18 months at a time. And then when the phenylethylamine hormone in your head wears off, you will stop feeling feelings of love with that person. And that's why I say, oh, I've just fallen out of love now. And then they bounce every 18 months, every two years, relationship to relationship, sometimes less, sometimes down as far as six months if they do it all the time. Because your brain and your hormonal system starts to become immune to those great feelings of love and then you don't feel any love at all. You start to feel numb, you start to feel cold. Well, what do you do to reinvigorate a relationship? And this works for you whether you've been married two years, dating two years, or, or married 80 years. Actions of love lead to feelings of love. Okay, so this is what you do. You light a candle. You put on Barry White. What else do we do, Danielle? Well, we can't, say, we can't talk about everything, but we'll talk about what's publicly acceptable. Um, you cook some Italian pasta and you get the garlic and the oil sizzling. In the meantime, Barry White's in the, in the background. Oh, yeah. Okay. And your wife walks through the kitchen while you're cooking. And you mouth to Barry White. Hey, baby, I've been thinking about you, girl. I'm getting carried away now. We've been married 23 years this year. So I think I'm allowed to like brag on my wife a little bit. But this is it. So, so then what we do is we light the candle and we sit down and we eat dinner and we stare into each other's eyes, making sure that we both eat the garlic because otherwise like, one of us has the unfair advantage. <laughs> Sometimes we dance. Sometimes we dance real good. Actions of love lead to feelings of love. And after we do that, we feel more loving. Do we feel more loving, Danielle? Do you? Give me a good nod. So you put, put me under pressure. Everyone's watching, Danielle. Actions of love lead to feelings of love. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the romantic love that you feel in a loving, monogamous, lifelong relationship is in any way how you're supposed to feel by God. But, but, but Paul uses the, the metaphor of, of a husband and wife's love as a metaphor for God and his church. 
Jesus and his church. It says this joining of lives and this learning of a husband to love his wife the way Christ loved the church is in fact a metaphor so that when we look at that type of thing and we look at the dynamics of that relationship, what we're really doing is we're looking through a keyhole and we're seeing the way it's supposed to work with God. That's Ephesians chapter 5. It's a picture. He says, I'm speaking of marriage, but I'm speaking of a mystery of Christ and the church. And all the way through, Paul has, hey, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He proceeds that by saying, submit to each other out of love. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He's, do, do actions of love so that you have the feelings of love. He extends it to family. Man, parents, don't, don't exasperate your children. Fathers, nurture your children. Let's talk about your children. Now, the, this is, doesn't apply to any kid or parent in this room. But you know how children are annoying? I mean, they're cute, but they are only cute for so long. And then they are annoying. And the less sleep you got, the more annoying they gotten. Isn't that true? The less well-rested you are, and the little darlings really want to help you with your development of the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness... And they're going to test you every step of the way. Push all your buttons. They're annoying. Okay. And so there's a common thing. There's a common thing. Um, don't worry, Lily. This is Lily. She's my 14-year-old. Don't worry, Lily. You're not annoying. <laughs> and so people will often come and talk to me like, this is a common malady for parents, okay? Here it is. Pastor Ben, help me. I love my kids, but I can't stand my kid. I love my little darlings. I just want to kill them now. Please help me not to, okay? And anyone... Now, you don't have to admit it in this room because maybe you've got family here and, of course, you're in church, so no doubt you feel some type of compulsion to appearance manage. But you will go through a season of life with everybody that you love where, you know, you don't love them so much. And what do you do in that time? The faulty map of our society says live by your feelings and so then if I live by my feelings, not feeling feelings of love is now evidence that I don't love so I don't know, I go get new kids. Who would be mad enough to do that? Get a motorbike instead. Get a pony or a horse, you can lock it in a cage and I want to lock you up for doing that. It's all good. Um, run away, start again. There's all sorts of, of faulty maps our society provides. If only these children weren't a burden to me then I could have a better, more fulfilling, self-actualised life. Faulty map. And a faulty map when combined with a faulty compass in my heart, points me a little bit, little bit I'm, I'm a little bit more selfish than I should be. What about you? And so one of the reasons, I'm joking when I say kids are annoying because we all know we love them, but they are annoying. Um, the, the faulty compass in my heart will, will dangerously misinterpret them as annoying when really what they are is little developing humans that have needs. Require nurturing, coaching, Love, calming, soothing, discipline, boundaries. There's all sorts of things they need. But see, the faulty compass in my heart would just say, no, but they're annoying because they're infringing on my relaxation time or my convenience. That's a, a faulty map, but, but the faulty compass of my heart. And so what do you do when you're just at your wit's end with your kids? You perform actions of love. One of the wonderful graces of God in parenting is this thing called sleeping children. And your children annoy you all day. And all night sometimes, but eventually they sleep. And especially when they're quite young, when they sleep, they just like, <laughs> their arms are thrown back. Every muscle and facial expression is slack. They're drooling out the side of their mouth. And you look at them and you're like, 
forgive you for everything, don't you? you? It resets the clocks. And you stand there and you love on them. And especially when you're new, we used to do this all the time. You call your babe over, babe. And you just stand and like a couple of weird stalkers stare into the, <laughs> stare into the child's cot, don't you? And you talk, isn't she beautiful? Look at her. That's amazing. Yeah, she smells funny, but that's all right. We'll deal with that tomorrow when she wakes up. Look at that. What do you reckon she's dreaming right there? Oh, she takes after you, bit of gas. Um, what you do is you rehearse. So what, that's what you're doing, right? You're rehearsing your love. You're turning, you're, oh, you're gazing. You're looking lovingly. You're talking, oh, he's in he's, he's, he's amazing. Look at he does his muscle. You're rehearsing. So what you're actually doing then is you're performing actions of love. You're, you're longing for them, yearning after them, loving on them. They don't even know it. They're asleep. But as you do that, you feel them feels. You're, because actions of love lead to feelings of love. But our world tells us a faulty map that says feelings of love should navigate my life and then the faulty compass will only ever look for the feeling and then when I don't have the feeling, we'll interpret the lack of feeling as the absence of love. Which brings us to the way we relate to God. Because sometimes we don't feel like worshipping God, do we? Sometimes we don't feel like serving God. Sometimes we don't, and, and when we don't feel like doing that to God, we're less likely to love our neighbour. Isn't that true? I'm, I'll tell you now, I'm much better at loving my neighbour when I'm good at loving God. And when I'm not loving God well, my neighbours probably suffer a little bit. And my neighbours mostly are my family under my roof. <laughs> and those neighbours can tell what's going on with Papa. How about you? Okay. So I, I need recalibrating and you need recalibrating. And how we recalibrate is we worship and we pray. Now, we don't just do it to recalibrate, we do it for other reasons, but doing it recalibrates us. Therefore, I don't wait till I feel like praying to pray. Ever notice if you wait till you feel like praying to pray, it's been a long time since you prayed? Or you're going through a crisis, and then you pray. Mm-hmm. Because then you suddenly remember, my map doesn't cater for this crisis, I need some help. My compass got me shipwrecked or lost. I, I, I need some help. I'm putting up my hand. I'm SOSing in my heart up to heaven as soon as there's a crisis. But not the calling of the disciple to wait for the crisis before we love God. To wait for the crisis before we pray. You know, when you, you, you're sometimes getting this rhythm where you say, I've done everything I can now, all I can do is pray. Here's the question. What if prayer is everything we can do? It's not our last resort. What, what if prayer is our first alternative? What if worshipping is our first alternative? To know that I have to have my map renewed and I have to have my compass fixed. And then as I navigate the challenges of life, I'm now doing it with something working for me rather than something working against me. If you read the, the, in the Kingdom of the Ice, think about the tragedy of, of 180 people, 130 people, going missing in the Arctic for two years because they navigated according to a map that was a fiction and had a faulty compass anyway. Could have been solved with an accurate map. Could have been solved with a functional compass. Our lives are like that, friends, aren't they? 
you're going to have storms in your personal life, in your mind, in your heart, in your emotions. Our society, our town, our region, your household, my workplace, my workplace, man. Um, people laughing know our staff, so that's why it's funny. We're going to have storms. And sometimes we interpret a storm as the absence of God and the absence of God's love and the absence of God's favour. But a storm isn't evidence for any of that stuff. A storm is a fixture of reality in a free universe. But our navigation habits, our loving habits, that will determine whether we know God to be present. God's never not present. Psalm 139, that amazing hymn of David, where can I go from your presence, Lord? If I make my bed in the heights, you are there. If I go down to Sheol... The grave, hell, if I, go down there, if I go down there, you're there. God is everywhere. You can't outrun God. Sometimes we feel like God's far away, but that's feelings. And we already know our feelings require radical reorientation on a regular basis, all the time, for everything. That's feelings. But really the truth is God is always there. So the question is not, is God here or not? The question is, am I aware of God's presence or not? Am I connecting to God's presence or not? So Jesus knew this was an issue for the disciple, and so he taught us. And he taught us a prayer, which we're going to talk about for this week, and we're going to probably finish it off next week. This message is called The Prayer of the Disciple. And it's going to come to us from our text this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. You'll know it as the Lord's Prayer, but I like to think of it as the disciples' prayer because, well, he taught them to pray it this way. This is the way of prayer of the disciple, the way of prayer of the follower of Jesus. Now, to understand this prayer, you have to understand that Jesus is trying to achieve something in teaching the disciples this prayer. He's trying to teach them to pray in a way that turns the world upside down. He's trying to teach them to pray in a way that turns the world upside down. And when God takes the world and turns it upside down, on further analysis, we would look at it and we would say, huh, now it's the right way around. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, a radical way that reorients the map of their reality, a radical way that reorients the map of the compass of their hearts so that life doesn't have to be a shipwreck. And when all of us do it together, our society doesn't have to be a shipwreck. Our church doesn't have to be a shipwreck. Our family doesn't have to be a shipwreck. Our workplace doesn't have to be a shipwreck. Listen to what Jesus said. This then is how you should pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through to 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why we get so hung up these days on escaping to heaven where we think, God, let your will be done on heaven so I can get away from the earth is not disciple mind, is it? Disciple mind. God, let earth be reshaped just like your heavenly will is. So for the disciple, this is about the heavenization of earth, not about us escaping earth to get to heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The prayer of the disciple. 
the prayer of the disciple. You know, you could take these questions down, which you can probably get on YouTube later, or listen back to this on Spotify during the week, or, I don't know, take out your phone and screenshot it now. You should read this in your own time and consider these questions. Here are the questions at the heart of this prayer. Who's praying? Who are we praying to? Why are we praying? How do we pray? And what do we pray for? And Jesus answers these questions all through this text. Luke tells a similar story. He says that the disciples came to him and said, well, Jesus, John taught his disciples to pray, so will you teach us to pray? And then Jesus teaches them this same prayer. Let's have a look at the first line. This then is how you should pray. Everybody say you. Okay. This word you, I've given you an a, a, um, a Uncle Ben's translation from the Greek in the pink writing up on the screen. In the Greek it says, thus pray y'all. The, 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 the you is a plural, which means it's not talking about you locking yourself in your, away in your room praying. It's not talking about you on your own, and that's a bit of a key to the way a disciple prays, okay? Listen to it. The way a disciple is taught to prayer in the school of King Jesus is we do it together. Now, I know you're like, yeah, tell me something I don't know. I don't mind what you know. I mind what you do. To pray in a Bible way, we have to do it together. Let me say it a different way. When we're not doing it together, we're not doing it the Bible way. We're not doing it in a way that reorients us the way Jesus wants us to. Have a look at this slide. Following Jesus means we ask God together for stuff. Often, says Albert Moller, our prayer pattern and our prayer life isn't biblical, so our answers are not forthcoming. And I couldn't think of a more accurate way to phrase one of the prayer problems in the modern church. Because most of us pray when we drive, in the shower, other places, attending to things, okay? But a disciple prayer is a prayer where we get together and we follow King Jesus when he says, when you pray, plural, pray in this way. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the Greek up on the screen for you so that you can test my theology out, okay? And I've saved you by just giving you a, a, a couple of quick Greek lessons, okay? Those two words, prosukeste and umes, are plural words. That's why it says, thus therefore pray you. And I've changed it to, thus pray y'all. The King James would say, this is how ye should pray. The Queenslander in me would say, this is how yous should pray. Okay? The first step in the prayer of the disciple is learning that we do it together. This is one of the ways we do it together every week. And it's amazing how people who continuously put in prayer request cards continuously enjoy answers to prayer. It doesn't happen overnight. In the words of Rachel Stewart, but uh, will happen. Remember the TV ad, the shampoo ad? We pray together. So we put our prayer requests in. So here's the thing. So you can put your prayer requests in, but here's the other thing. We need you to pray with us. We actually need you to pray. When we, when we come, we pray every week for these prayer requests in our services. And it's not for a moment tokenism. 
It's not for a moment lip service to prayer. It's a vital moment because we together as the people of God are obeying Jesus, praying for people's daily bread, praying for his kingdom to come and his will be done in these situations as it is in heaven. And we need our agreement. Jesus said, when two or more of you agree, touching anything, I will do it. And we need your agreement when we pray. It's why we do this. I know you can't come and pray every day because you have many priorities like I do that compete in this amazing, busy world. So we don't do a prayer meeting every day and expect you to come. But we do do an encounter night once a month. One of the poorest attended meetings in our church. I wonder if this could be a year where we disciple ourselves to join together and obey Jesus in prayer. I'm not asking you to do it every, every day of the week. I'd love it if you could. We have small groups devoted to prayer in our church because they can't come out late or they can't come at night or they can't come during the week. So there's, there's times, there's islands in the week where people pray. Sundays once a month, people get together and pray for mission. Every Wednesday, almost people get together in prayer. And even when social distancing's happen, I think, Dr. Koshi, we even do it on Zoom. Is that right? So you might not be able to come to our encounter night tonight, but you might be able to pray with us on Wednesdays. You might be able to pray with us with passion and belief in our services and not just stare around the room. See, it's something you and I have to improve on, friends. We've been focusing over the last few weeks on the life of the disciple. We started with the journey of the disciple. Last week, we looked at the fruit of the journey of a disciple. Today, we're talking about the prayer of the disciple, and we'll talk more about it next week. But we can't get past go if we don't understand something that is at the core of Jesus' teaching on how a disciple prays. A disciple does it in a group. Often people come and talk to me, Pastor Ben, my personal prayer life is really suffering. I'm going to tell you my shocking and revolutionary advice about that. Are you ready for it? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The Bible devotes very little attention to your personal prayer life. This will set you free. You don't have to be Reese Howes, the intercessor. You don't have to be the world's most amazing prayer warrior. Um, but if you want to be a disciple, you are going to need to get together with some other disciples. And then what's so good about that is as we all join our belief and join our passion and join our faith and join our prayers, none of us even has to be very good at it. Because what we find is we get together and agree that Jesus asked the Father to do what we touch. And then we find that prayer is answered not because we are good at it, but because God is good. That was a terrible response to a really great point. I know you're feeling beaten up because I talked to you about Encounter Night. It's not about how good we are at praying. It's because God is good. And so when we pray, it's not performance. Jesus precedes this passage by saying, don't babble like the pagans do. They think like the better prayers they are, the gods are going to hear them. Sophisticated prayers are not what Jesus is into. You can see the Sermon on the Mount is one of the shorter prayers from antiquity. You can read it in 22 seconds. You can pray it longer if you want to elaborate on the prayers if you want, or like the liturgical um, services do all across this country on days like today, they'll pray the prayer exactly as it's written. But of course, the point is that the simplicity of Jesus is beautiful. Our first lesson, when we pray, do it together. Following Jesus means praying together. 
Well, when you pray, plural, this is what, what do we pray? We pray, our Father. In the Greek, it says, Father of us. Listen to this recognition. This is imperative for you and I to understand as disciples of Jesus. Jesus' calling to pray does not just turn us to God, but also turns us towards each other. We pray in awareness of what we are part of as community. We pray in awareness of a movement that we are part of, not just in this building, but in this town, in this region, across this nation, across the nations of the earth. And we simultaneously hold all those images in mind at once to understand that we are part of a historical, ancient, global movement that is always expanding and pushing forward the kingdom of God. And we say, God, you are our father. And then we look around the room and we say, well, well, well that changes the way we see each other when we're our father Christians. Plenty of us are my father Christians. That's not the prayer of a disciple. The prayer of a disciple is our father. Now I have to recognize you. Now I have to recognize that you, you and me are family. You, that's why we pray for each other's needs. There's a family member of someone here that needs healing. I don't know that family member, but man, I'm called by Jesus to be an our father prayer. Now, now I'm praying for my sister. I'm praying for my sister. I'm, pray, I'm praying for my family member. Someone else here, they, they need a miracle of healing and they need accommodation to come through this week. They've asked for this to be kept anonymous. And even though you don't know their names, if we are our father Christians, we're praying for your brother and your sister this morning. Changes it, doesn't it? It changes it when, when it's family. That, that's different. It's no longer just an academic exercise. It's no longer just an unfortunate thing happening somewhere else. This is happening to my family. What does it mean when we look at the Ukraine invasion by Russia or the refugee crisis around the world or, or human trafficking or all sorts of injustices and we get on our knees and we pray as our father Christians for our brothers and our sisters? You will feel that in a completely different way if you pray like a disciple. And the gateway is we pray together. We pray as our... Here it is again. Father of us, we stand together we're family, God. You're not just my father, you're our father. My sister and brother on these needs. My sisters and brothers in the Ukraine. My, my sisters and brothers in Syria or Turkey. My sisters and brothers in the United States. My sisters and brothers in Western Australia or, or Melbourne. Even Tasmania. It changes the way we pray when we pray in a Bible fashion. Our father. When we pray our father... In heaven. You could translate the Greek as our Father. Who is in the heavenlies? So powerful. It's not, as so many suppose, a phrase designed to um, amplify God's distance. God's in heaven, I'm here, he must be far away. Yell louder. It's not. Our Father who is in the heavenlies is a recognition. It's an ancient recognition. See, for the ancient world, they believed that the heavenlies, the spirituality that surrounded planet Earth was the seat of power, the seat of challenges, the seat of influence. The heavenlies was where they believed sickness came from because if I get sick, there must be some evil spiritual presence making me sick. Many people still believe things like that today. If, if the Roman army is invading, there must be a dark spiritual power behind the Roman army causing it to do so. That's why Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. The heavenlies, they, they have an influence. Spirituality, there is evil lurking out there. There is darkness lurking out there, and it's intangible. We can't put our finger on it. It doesn't have a name and an address. 
But boy, it affects everybody at their name and address, doesn't it? And the disciple recognises, yes, there is influential darkness out there. But our Father, He rules and reigns over that darkness. He, he rules and reigns at the seat of challenge. Jesus taught us that God is the power that can influence everything. Our Abba, he's not just a, a formal father. Jesus called him Abba Father, the word for daddy. And Paul carried on that tradition and said, when we have the Holy Spirit upon our hearts, the Spirit causes us, he doesn't say causes me, the Spirit causes us to yell, Abba Father. Hello, we've got a new little preacher coming up the stairs. Hi, darling. Most of the people run away from me in church, that's right. What a sweetheart. Abba Father. Our Abba Father, our Daddy, is in charge of the heavenlies. Well, that changes the way we pray when together we get together in a room and say, we pray as the family of God. I have a friend, he's the principal of a school. He recently got a call from the disciplinarian of the school and said, I need to talk to you right now. He went down the office and he walks into the disciplinarian's office and his two sons were in the disciplinarian's office. They'd just been expelled from the school. And you know why they got expelled from the school? Because when they were getting in trouble for whatever they did previously, they looked at the disciplinarian and they said, our dad's the boss, we're going to get you fired. Breach of school policy for the staff of children. They got expelled from the school. I know, imagine. Makes it awkward when you rock up to staff meeting next week. But I like the tenacity of those kids. Because in a way, they're kind of onto something that Jesus is getting at in this, in this prayer. Our dad's the boss. You know, when we pray for people, we're praying over their problems as the children of the dad who's the boss. And according, look, I don't know about that school, but according to Jesus, you don't get expelled for praying that prayer. We can cast out evil because our dad's the boss. We, we can confront illness and we can lay hands on each other and we can communicate and transmit the grace of God. Why? Not because we're good. That's why in our church we don't do these weird theatrics. I'm not going to pull you up and hit you with a jacket. I'm not going to spit water all over you and all these other things you see on TV. You know what? We don't have to pray up an aneurysm. I don't have to pop the foreheads out of my brain when I pray for you. You know why? Because my dad's the boss. Therefore, it's his authority. It ain't my authority. I'll tell you something else. I can't actually do anything for you. Don't worry, you can't do anything for me. But our dad's the boss. And so when we pray for each other, we pray easy, man. We pray relaxed. We pray confidently. We pray in faith and we pray with passion because our dad's the boss. And didn't Jesus say he's the father that will give good things to his children? Our father who's in the heavenlies, we recognize our God is in charge. Hallowed be your name. Tricky phrase, especially if you turn off because you think hallowed and Halloween are linked and then you start going down a different thing about pumpkins. <laughs> May your name be made holy. That's what it could be interpreted as. May your name be venerated. May your name be consecrated. Correctly, it's often observed, Jesus taught that worship precedes prayer. Notice so far we've said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And there's so much to unpack in there, which we won't do. But we haven't even got to our needs yet. We've reoriented ourselves towards each other. We pray as family. 
We care about each other's needs. We're in touch. I'm passionate about your answer to prayer. You should be passionate about my answer to prayer. We're passionate about the answer to these prayers together. It's our family. May God's name be hallowed. Jesus teaches us that worship precedes prayer. But more importantly than that, Jesus' teaching on prayer opens by reorienting our map and reorienting our compass. And here's what it does. I need you to stay with me. It causes us to yearn for something. Causes us to yearn for something. God, may your name be great. This phrase is a thoroughly Bible phrase. It comes from the Old Testament. And the aims and the endeavours of the Old Testament were that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and everybody would recognise the greatness of God's name. That's why you see whenever angels surround the throne, they sing holy, holy, holy. Like, how great is God? Holiness cubed, baby. Worthy, worthy, worthy. How great is God? Worthiness cubed, baby. We would love the whole earth to know the goodness of God, the whole earth to know the wonder of God. And Jesus teaches us to begin our prayer by orienting our heart to yearn that the whole world would know of the greatness of God. So it is worship, but you understand there's something deeper happening. It's not just worshipping God. It is actually beginning my prayer with a deep yearning that says, God, the deepest hunger of my heart is for myself and my own selfishness, if I'm honest. And so instead I stand with my brothers and sisters and I pray, God, may your name be hallowed. May your name be consecrated. May your name be great. What am I doing? Well, performing actions of love leads to feelings of love. And so what happens as I begin to worship God and as I begin to say, God, my hunger and my thirst is for your righteousness. God, I hunger and I yearn for your name to be great. Then actually something begins to shift in my heart. And guess what happens when I get up off my knees? I actually yearn for God's name to be great actually yearn to live in a way that reflects his wonder and his love and his grace. I yearn. Then, then what happens is, and then I walk down the street and I relate to people in a way where I'm, I, I'm cautious. I yearn. My yearning has reconfigured the map of my life and the compass of my heart. And so now when I relate to someone, I'm able to do it in a different way where I hope that because of what we do, they could see something of God. And that is much different, friends than trying to be as good a Christian as I can and don't break the rules so I don't defame the name of God. Understand? When my heart, the map, the compass is reoriented, it opens up a completely different way for me to even live my life. And that's just the first line of Jesus' prayer. I want to ask you for something if you plan on being in Alice Springs over the next few months, over the next few years. I want us to pray like Jesus' disciples were taught to pray. I want us to get better at our corporate prayer. Because, see, the thing I know that I hope you can get a hold of is that the most important things that could happen in and through this church are not a result of our labour and our programs, but will only be a result of what God himself can do. We'll be friendly to you. We'll build community. We'll build family. I hope you form great relationships in this church. But you know, we're not just a social club and we're certainly not just a social support network. The deepest needs we have, only God can meet them, friends. And when the church tries to be a, a slick club with enough programming to just keep everybody happy so that all of our little consumer customers keep coming back for more, 
All we're doing is building an idol. Jesus said he would build this church. The day I think I'm building it, I'm going into competition with King Jesus. Not a competition I'm probably going to win, hey? What about you? So I want our church to rise in prayer, saints of the living God. If you're visiting, God bless you. Wherever you settle next, go join them in prayer. If you're watching online, join your church in prayer. Be part of one and join it in prayer. The first thing Jesus taught his disciples, we orient towards each other and we pray to our Father together. And together we yearn for the greatness of God's name to be known. A prayer like that, we'll talk about it next week. Jesus teaches them to pray. Your will be done, your kingdom. Come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. So I thought today we'd finish by doing two things. Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. And then he taught us to break bread together. There's a wonderful picture of how the kingdom of God works, friends. Often we are the answer to our prayers. Often we are the answer to our prayers. Think about Jesus who founded the church's gathering. Whenever you get together, break bread in remembrance of me. Every time we break bread, we're living into a symbolic answer to Jesus' prayer that we would all have our daily bread, our brothers and sisters in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, our brothers and sisters in Antarctica, our brothers and sisters in Texas, our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, our brothers and sisters all through the world suffering. God, give us our daily bread. Hey, many of us, we have our daily bread, but we've got to bear in mind those who don't have their daily bread. And so even in communion, we symbolically join with God's family and we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus like he told us to and we break bread looking ahead to that wonderful marriage supper of the lamb in heaven where all nations every tribe every tongue will be feasting around the throne of the lamb it's pretty awesome huh and so today friends let us stand on our feet let us if you haven't used one of these before there's a little bread in the top and you peel off the transparent layer and take the bread, and then you can peel off the silver layer, which will give you the cup. And it's not alcoholic just because you're driving. So it's okay. You can have it if you're underage. And I welcome anyone in our church to join in communion. I welcome anyone to feast with us and to break bread with us. And we live today as those who say, God, give us today our daily bread. But in a way we recognize, God, you've given us our daily bread and communion is a symbol of everything Jesus has provided for us in the gospel. If you came in and you didn't get one of these, you could just shoot a hand up like this and our team are just wandering the, the hallways right now and they will give you one, make sure that you didn't miss out. You're very welcome to have one. Why don't we take the bread in our hand? Hey, Dan, would you do that for me? I cannot multitask. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Oh, sorry, Lil. You can have it. Let's take the bread in our hand. We're going to take communion together. Then we're going to turn and we're going to pray for the needs on our prayer cards. And I hope that this will cause you to consider coming to our encounter night tonight, where we will, actually using the formula of the Lord's Prayer, bomb heaven with the prayer needs in our community and our world as well. Gospel tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. You have to understand the statement that goes with the breaking of the bread. This is my body broken for you. And he rips it in half. Jesus thinking of his suffering and his death and his crucifixion. 
the ripping and the shredding and the pain and the sacrifice. Why? Not just because it's a tragedy. Broken for you. Broken for you. He says, take this and eat it in remembrance of me. Come on this morning, why don't we take our daily bread mindful of the sacrifice of Jesus to bring us healing, to bring us wholeness, to bring us redemption. Come on, eat around this room, friends. So Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Imagine the grapes of the vine harvested at the prime of their life, at the peak of their ripeness. Harvested and thrown in a a vat, stepped on, trampled underfoot, squeezed until their lifeblood flowed. That's how you make wine. You take it and you pluck it. You seize it. You squeeze it. You stomp it. And it pours out. Jesus said that's what happened to him on the cross, that he was harvested from the prime of his life. Then he was put under pressure. He was tortured. He suffered. He died. He was crucified and died and buried. He poured out his blood. Well, not just because of a tragic martyrdom, but actually an act of redemption to bring us close to God, to pay the penalty for our sins, to free us from the power of sin and to cleanse us from the pollution of sin. Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. Why don't we drink together knowing that as we worshipped and prayed and sat under God's word, like we take in this juice, we take in the gospel message today. Come on, friends, why don't we drink in this room? And of course, in his resurrection, Jesus rose from grave the grave victorious, living a victorious life. He invites every one of us, wherever we've been heading, wherever we've come from, to draw a line in the sand of our lives and turn around and follow him and say, God of the universe, my answer is yes to the gospel. My answer is yes to the life of Jesus. My answer is yes to the journey of the disciple. My answer is yes to your sacrifice and your love and living in wholeness with you. My answer is yes to a new map. My answer is yes to a brand new compass in life. That's what he offers every one of us, friends. And I know many of us in this room have said yes to the gospel. But if you haven't ever said yes to the gospel before, now's a good time as we stand here to say, God, I'm saying yes to you right now. Oh God, my answer is yes to you. I want to turn around. I want to draw that line in the sand of my life and I want to follow you as well. Whether you've done it a thousand times, whether you did it once and have fallen away, whether you've never said yes to the gospel before, as we close today, every single one of us in our hearts, why don't we just affirm, God, my answer is yes. My answer is yes to living in your way. My answer is yes to the new map you can provide. My answer is yes to the new alignment of my compass, God. Maybe for some of us, it's been a bit out of whack. And today your prayer is just, God, will you just help me orientate back to you again? Father, I pray for my friends in this room needing, like I do, reorientation in our hearts and minds. So we pray for your work, pray for your word to permeate us, to saturate us, to percolate through us, Father. Help us follow Jesus in his wonderful, wonderful way. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hey, friends, we're going to pray. We are going to pray. And we're going to pray for the needs on these prayer cards. We've got a couple here saying that praying for a miracle, an absolute miracle of healing, and praying that they will have a miracle for accommodation to come through by Thursday this week. Who can be believing for healing for this couple? Who can be believing for God to provide accommodation for them? Got a praise report here. 
Joe and Jane are just thanking God for some great days that Joe has had this week. If you guys are watching online, we're praying for you. Heard you have been down in Adelaide, but uh, we're believing for an absolute work of God's miracle working power in your body, Joe, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Couple here asking for healing, healing of their lungs and to be blessed with clean scans in the future. Who can believe for healing for that in Jesus' name? And Helen here, she's praying for a family member. A family member needs healing. Well, friends, according to Jesus, this is our family that are suffering. So let us begin to pray for breakthrough. Let us begin to pray that God will meet these needs, that he'll pour his grace out and cover the lives of these people. Let us pray that they will have their daily bread from from Daddy God. Let us pray that God's kingdom will come and his will be done in these situations as it is in heaven. Come on, let me hear you praying all over this room, all over this room today. Let's the people of God just begin to pray. Just begin to pray for these people. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you. Come on, let me hear you lift your voices, people of God. I want to hear you pray. I want to hear you pray. Speak it out. Father, we thank you for meeting these needs in Jesus' name. And we agree together, Father, as Jesus follows. We agree together in faithfulness as your word. You are our Father. And we bring our family to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in every one of these situations here in Jesus' name. And we agree together for grace. We agree together for healing. We agree together for your will, Father, in Jesus' name. Lord, cover them with your grace. Cover them with your goodness, Father. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. Hey, maybe you're here in this room and you didn't get to put one of these prayer requests in, but you have a need. Here's what I'm going to get you to do. Just shoot one hand up to heaven as a symbol to God and we're going to pray for you. No one's going to touch you because we're socially distancing, but the good news is God can touch you even if we don't touch you. That's a wonderful thing. If you've got a need, why don't you just shoot a hand up to heaven and we'll include you in our prayers. Father, every need represented by an upraised hand in this room, we thank you for your grace right now. We thank you for your provision, your healing, your touch, your victory, your breakthrough, the light of the gospel, the goodness of God in the land of the living, Father. We thank you today. Your word says you are good and you do good, Father. And so today, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, whatever these needs are, that you would show your face that you would pour out your grace in these situations, Lord. Let everyone with an upraised hand, maybe an anxious mind or an aching heart, let them know your comfort. Let them know the presence of your Holy Spirit, Father. Let them know the goodness of God in the land of the living. And we stand with them today, Father. Bless them, heal them, touch them, move in their lives, meet every need according to your riches in glory, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, let's give King Jesus a hand clap of praise all over this room tonight, friends. Thank you, Jesus.